So as, um, as Oliver mentioned at the start of the service, the, um, the, the format is slightly different this evening, but that's a good thing. It's, um, it's good that we have the opportunity to, um, to bring testimony, to, to share, and, um, and also to sing, sing praises to God. It's a good thing to do. But it's also important, of course, that we, we hear from his word. And this evening, we're going to look at the theme of grace. Because grace is one of these words that we, we often use in church. It's not used an awful lot outside of church, although sometimes it is. Sometimes we can use it incorrectly. I remember being at school and having to say grace before lunch every day. And the grace was, uh, for what we are about to receive, may the Lord make us truly thankful. Amen. And that is not grace. Because actually, that we're saying, may the Lord make us truly thankful. So that assumes that for the food in front of us, we're not grateful. We're asking God to make us grateful. Now, I know some people would say, you didn't see my school dinners, you wouldn't have been grateful. But that's not the point. It's not a grace, is it? It's not grace if we need to be made thankful for something that we've been given. However, grace is of fundamental importance to the Christian faith. Because it's through grace that we are saved. Now you might be sitting there thinking, well why do we need grace? Why is grace important? Paul gives us an explanation of this in Romans. He begins in Romans 3.23 by making the point that, that grace isn't simply something which, which some people need. Some people have, have made such a mess of life that they can't do any more themselves. They need the grace of God, but, but it's just for, just for the really bad ones amongst us. He says, no, 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 that's not the way it works. He says in, in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, the only way that we can not fall short of the glory of God is if we are perfect, absolutely perfect, never, ever having been polluted by sin. And Paul knows as well as we do that no one can claim to be perfect. No one will sit here tonight and think, well, I cannot think of a single time in my life that I've made a mistake, that I've lost my temper, that I've said something or done something that I've later regretted, something which, which doesn't tie in with biblical teaching, something that's going to dishonour God. No one can, of course not. No one's perfect. It's a, it's a cliche because it's true. No one's perfect except, except, he goes on to say, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, he died without sin. Jesus was perfect. And so by dying on the cross... He opened up an avenue into heaven, the only avenue for us to have a relationship with our heavenly father. He could absorb our sin, take our sin off us, pay the price, whatever phraseology we choose to use, through Jesus, we will be made perfect, perfect enough to enter heaven and reside there for eternity when our time comes. It's through grace that we receive that. You see, grace is giving somebody something 
that they simply do not deserve. Paul points to himself and in, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he says, I am the worst of sinners. He points to this is Saint Paul, Paul the Apostle, Paul who wrote um, all the epistles or the majority of the epistles in the New Testament. He wrote a staggering amount of letters to churches. He planted churches. At first, of course, he had been um, an opponent of the early church. He was certainly present, if not taking part, in the stoning of Stephen. When he, when he had his conversion experience, he was on the way to Damascus with a letter giving him permission from the governor to arrest Christians, take them into, into custody. And then it all changed. When on the road to Damascus, he has the meeting with Jesus. He's blinded. He hears the voice, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And having spent a long time considering his position in life, considering what he'd done in the past, and considering just what what it would take for him to be forgiven, how much he had sinned against God, he was then able to point to himself and say, I am the worst of sinners. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because he doesn't say, I was the worst of sinners. He doesn't say, I I used to be the worst of sinners. I used to be awful. He says, I am the worst of sinners. You see, just because we have a conversion experience, it doesn't mean that we stop being sinners. It doesn't mean that we suddenly become perfect. We will be made perfect But at the moment, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, one of the biggest barriers that people find when they come to faith is the issue of forgiveness. Because when people suddenly realise the reality of God, the, the importance of faith and the truth of Scripture, they suddenly say, right, hang on, if this is real, then... I have done so, so much in my life that has displeased and dishonoured God. Sorry, but there is no way he's going to want me in his kingdom. There is no way that he's going to want me to come and and play a part in his narrative. In fact, that can be a crushing moment for somebody if we're not careful. Because until that point, people sail through life thinking, yeah, I might have upset somebody, I might have said something that hurt some feelings, I might have made a bad decision, but so what? It doesn't matter. I've got no one to answer to. This is not a new phenomenon, people sailing through life without a care in the world, not not thinking of, of, of of a... spiritual dimension, not thinking of the possibility that God could be real. Augustine, 1600 years ago, the Roman emperor said, my sin was all the more incurable because I did not think of myself a sinner. He never thought he was a sinner until suddenly, suddenly, he had a conversion experience. He, he, He became aware that God was real. And then he started thinking of himself as a sinner. And then he started reflecting back 
on some of the atrocities that he had been responsible for that had been committed in his name. And he realised that he could easily have challenged Paul for the title Worst of Sinners. Self-forgiveness is a difficult thing. And it's difficult for us to understand how grace works alongside forgiveness sometimes. I, um, a couple of years ago, Joe and I looked after a friend's dog at Christmas time. And this dog is, it is incredibly well behaved. When you take it for a walk, you don't even have to tell it to stop at a curb. It will simply stop. And even if you carry on walking and cross the road, because you know there's no traffic, because it's late at night, the dog will stay there. And you can get 100 yards down the road and you have to turn around and say, Ralph! That's his name, it's not my neighbour. Ralph! And he'll come running down the road and he'll walk next to you. He's so well behaved. Anyway, I was shocked when I walked home one day, opened the door, and um, I realised that my son's, um, some of my son's Christmas chocolate um, was was on the floor. And then I realised that there was the netting that uh, the chocolate coins come in on the floor as well. And then I realised there were little bits of foil with teeth marks in, and clearly there had been a bit of a massacre of the chocolate coins. And the dog that normally would come running to the front door to greet me wasn't there. Now, at first, I thought, oh, blowing dog. And then I thought, to be fair, he is well behaved. We've left it at nose height, all this chocolate. There's one bag of chocolate coins missing. He's pretty good. Right, I better clear this up before Joe gets in, otherwise I'm going I'm to be the one in trouble because these things always end up with it being my fault. I haven't quite worked out how yet. So um, anyway... I got a cloth and I cleaned up the chocolate and the foil and stuff and I put it on the bin and that was that. And then I thought, where is he? And I looked around and eventually I found him cowering in the corner. Now by this time, about ten minutes had passed in the clean up and you see, the point I'm making is that he knew that he had got it wrong, that he had made a mistake. And he was, he was terrified because he doesn't do much wrong. He was terrified and he was sitting in the corner and he was actually trembling. Little black spaniel, he was trembling. And I went and he said, hey, it's all right, it's all right. And he sort of was so, so scared. And when we make these mistakes in life, when we get it wrong, before we understand the grace of God, it's so easy for us to think, God know, if God is real and God knows what I've done... I don't, I don't want to come to church. I don't want to know him. I don't, I don't want, he's not going to want a relationship with me because I'm awful. I've done some awful stuff. But actually, just like me with the dog, God sees us. He knows what we've done. He cleans up our mess. And then he thinks, right, where are they? I want them to come to me. I want to reassure them. I want to show love and grace. Not because it's all right what they've just done, because it's not but because I forgive them. Sometimes we can live life cowering in the corner, just like that dog. In John 4, we read of a story of a woman that Jesus met who, in some ways, was cowering in a corner. We're told that in John 4, verse 4, Jesus and his disciples had to go through Samaria, on the journey they were on. They had to go through Samaria. Now, that was a place which uh, Jews and Samaritans, they did not get on, they did not mix, they kept apart. 
Jesus had to travel through. Now, we don't know why. We don't know if roads were blocked with with traffic. We don't know if there'd been a, a landslide and a certain pass had become impassable. We don't know why. But what we do know is that he had to be there in order to have this meeting. It takes place at a well. He and his disciples have been travelling and we're told in the sixth hour, that that'd be the sixth hour after daybreak. So that's going to be around midday, the hottest part of the day. He goes down to the well, the Samaritans have been sent into the town to go and find food. And he sits by the well and he waits. And eventually a Samaritan woman comes up to draw water. She comes up on her own. She's not got anyone with her. Now, drawing water in those days was a fairly social thing. It was something that people did together because you could carry more weight if you were sharing it. Plus, it was a social thing to do. And, I'm not being sexist here, it was normally a lady's job. I've noticed that these days, the modern equivalent seems to be ladies always seem to go to the toilet in groups of two and three. It was the same thing at the well in those days. This woman comes on her own. John recalls that because that's significant. Jesus says to her, will you give me a drink? She says, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? We don't mix. You shouldn't be talking to me. Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If you'd realised who I am, then the tables would be turned. I wouldn't be asking you for a drink. You would be asking me for living water. She says, sir, that that sounds great. That saved me coming to the well time after time. Give me some so that I won't get thirsty. Jesus says, go and call your husband. She replied, I have no husband. So Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you've no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is is quite true. What an awkward moment for that lady. She's just walked out on her own in the heat of the day, the time of the day that she knew nobody else would be there. She knew that she wasn't going to have to to face the disapproving looks from the rest of the community when she knew that that she wasn't going to have to stand in queue and and wait knowing that everybody else was talking together in groups and she was the only one on her own. She'd chosen the most hostile part of the day to go and get water. And she meets this bloke. And first of all, he's an outsider. He's he's from the enemy. He's he's someone that that wasn't welcome in, in Samaria. And secondly, he asked her for a drink. She can't really refuse him. He's a, he's, a, he's a man. But then he seems to know everything about her. Oh, he knows everything about her. And he's not shy in showing it. She tries to say, change the subject. Sir, I can see you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. 
You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, the Christ, is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. So in this, in this exchange, this woman has, has had her, her whole life drawn out in front of her. All of her, her secrets that she wouldn't want people to know, especially not a stranger. He's suddenly been really upfront about who she is, what she's done. And he promises her this living water. She's suspicious of him. Of course she is. How many men has she known that have promised her the world, that have made these these false promises just so that they can get into bed with her? How many times has she been been lied to and cheated and taken advantage of? And every time she's gone lower and lower and lower in the social structure of the day. Until she's got to the point where she's lonely. She's defensive. And she puts up barriers. As soon as someone tries to show kindness, she no longer trusts anybody because she's been hurt time and time again. But Jesus comes alongside her. Jesus comes alongside her. And he gives her time. He talks to her. And he dispels some of the myths that can prevent us today, as well as that lady at the well, from coming to him. The first one is that Jesus doesn't want us. This lady says immediately, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. You're a man, I'm a lady. There's no way that we should be having this conversation. I'm not, I, I shouldn't be serving you. But Jesus does want us. You see, when we come into the presence of Jesus, we come into the presence of one who cares, who loves us, who is prepared to forgive us through his grace. The second part is Jesus is more interested in in religious habit, in the history of religion. This lady tries to distract Jesus away from talking about her her various husbands by engaging the Son of God in a theological debate. I'm not sure how wise that is. But Jesus says to her, God wants worshippers that worship in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. Jesus does care about religion. He cares about Christian faith. He does care about the church. He does want us to to run the church in a way that honours him, the way that pleases him. But he cares more about the human aspects of church. He cares about the individual, the man or lady or child on the street who is lost. We are called to seek and save the lost, to follow the example that Jesus set. I heard a story a little while ago of someone who walks into a church having never set foot in there before. 
and the welcome they received is, you're 10 minutes late. The service started 10 minutes ago. And it had been a massive challenge for them to walk into church. And then they were told they were late. And they said, sorry, I walked out again. And they've never been seen in that church since. We have to be so careful to make sure that we show the love and welcome that Jesus shows rather than look at our watch and shake our heads. And finally, this this lady, Jesus meets her at the well. We can see from her attitude, from her story, from her backstory that She often goes to this well. This well gives her water, it keeps her alive, but it also emphasises a couple of things. It emphasises her loneliness. It emphasises that her people don't want to know her. It emphasises that she's gone from relationship to relationship and now she is the only one in her world. She's unloved, she's unsupported. No one really cares for her. She's been used. She's been discarded. And then suddenly, she meets Jesus. And everything changes. Now, I don't know where you are in life. I don't know what's going on in your lives. But I would ask you this question tonight and I encourage you to take this question away and be challenged and to challenge yourself and to ask yourself... What's in the well where Jesus meets you? When, you? when you go to a metaphorical well to draw strength, what's in there? Is it alcohol? Substance of some sort? That's going to give you a short-term fix, a bit of a buzz? Is it self-harm? When you've become so bitter and upset that the only thing you feel you can do is take it out on yourself, take your your anger out on yourself. And so you go to the well of self-harm. Or is it just self-loathing? You're so fed up with life, you're in such a low, desperate place that you go to this well of self-loathing and pity and darkness and shut everybody else out. Is it a well of intense sadness? Because something's happened in life that you simply cannot cope with. Is it a well of family disruption? A well of job stress? A well of debt? It could be a well of anything. But Jesus meets you at that well. And he offers you living water. He offers you the opportunity to have eternal life. A life that is fulfilled, a life that is, that is worth living, a life that has hope. He offers you that through grace, not because you deserve it, but because you are loved. I am loved. Every single person out there is loved by God. And we have the opportunity through his grace to turn away from whichever well we turn to. And to follow him. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking to her? 
Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. You see, the penny dropped for her. Could this be the Christ? He he knows everything about me. He's spoken to me about about worship in spirit and truth. He's, He's opened my eyes. He showed love to me despite what I've been through, what I've done, despite my history. He knew every detail, but still, still, he loved me. And that's grace. That's the grace of Jesus. And that's the grace that is open to each and every one of us throughout our lives. And that's the grace that I would urge you to seek and accept in your life if you haven't done already because it's always there for each and every one of us I'm going to pray and then I'm going to invite the band to come back up and lead us in worship Heavenly Father thank you for the gift of your grace Lord thank you that your grace is is limitless There is nothing we can do to to prevent you showing us grace. And Father, we pray that you'll help us to turn to you, to ask for your forgiveness every time that we let you down and fail in life, and to focus on the fact that through grace we are forgiven and we are loved. So Father, thank you for your gift. Thank you for what you've done for us. And thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.